Clipping those anchors is just this unparalleled feeling of bliss for me that is hard to find in other aspects of life, to be quite frank. Hey y'all, I'm Ryan Devlin and welcome to The Struggle Climbing Show, where I talk with elite climbers about their struggles and breakthroughs in training, nutrition, tactics, and mental game, and also what they're passionate about outside of their own climbing. Now today we're chalking up for a chat with one of the most accomplished climbers in the world, Sasha DeJulian. There's pretty much zero chance that you're unfamiliar with Sasha as a climber and as a person, as she's been smashing grades and glass ceilings in the sport for decades now. Now that said, she's such a superstar that some who are listening right now might have written her off because she's so famous. You know, like success and fame in the sport of climbing is, I don't know, it can be considered by some as like this bad thing. But let me tell you, Sasha has earned her fame. And in case you haven't been following along over the past 20 some years, let me just hit you with some highlights here. As a comp climber, Sasha's been female overall world champion twice, the undefeated Pan American champion for a 10-year span, and three-time U.S. national champ. She was just the third woman in the world to climb the grade of 9A, 514D, and she has more than 30 first ascents and first female ascents to her name. And let's just tick off a few of those, shall we? Some of her sport FFAs include the 14D, or 9A, Aravea in Spain, 14C, 8C+, Southern Smoke and Pure Imagination at my home crag of the Red River Gorge, and she's on-sited multiple 8B+, 514A routes, and those are all wildly impressive accomplishments, but I think what's even more impressive is how Sasha then took that sport climbing strength and parlayed it into incredibly challenging big wall ascents. She's the first woman to free the north face of the Eiger by way of the Magic Mushroom route, a technical 2,000-foot climb. She was the first woman to free Bella Vista, a big wall in the Dolomites with difficulty up to 514B, 8C. And by the way, she free soloed the top of that climb when she got off route, and it's something that we explore a little bit more in this conversation. And then Sasha was the first woman and only the second human to free the trilogy in the Canadian Rockies. That's three separate climbs that feature 514 pitches and total 9,000 vertical feet. Now, with all of those groundbreaking wins, one might assume that things kind of come easy for Sasha, but let me assure you that she is no stranger to struggle. Just a couple of years ago, in fact, Sasha underwent double hip surgery where doctors had to cut through muscle and bone to such an extreme that she had to learn how to walk again. And that is just one example of many struggles that we're going to be exploring here in this conversation. Sasha is as dedicated as they come, both on and off the wall, and she is a tireless voice for climbing access, women's rights, and the environment. Now, as you'll hear when we kick off this conversation, Sasha just released a memoir that she wrote titled Taking the Lead, Hanging On, Letting Go, and Conquering Life's Hardest Climbs. I was given an advanced copy of this before the interview, and I really, really enjoyed this book, y'all. I'm going to be referencing various stories and quotes from it throughout our chat here, which covers our usual pillars at the struggle, along with a few surprises that I didn't see coming, including something that Sasha shares for the first time ever. I think you all are really going to get a lot out of this conversation. All right, little update from my world over here. If you've been following along on Insta, you saw that I got laid out with COVID the past couple of weeks. It was a total drag. It hit me super hard. But perhaps a little bit of a blessing in disguise since it forced me to rest. And when I got back on the hangboard just recently, I was absolutely shocked to discover that I can do a one-arm lock-off. I've never been able to do that before, but I've just been training really consistently on a board, doing some weighted pull-ups and some hangs and that kind of thing. And then that forced rest, I think, just brought it all to peak. And training on that board has been super easy for me, even while I'm recovering from COVID at home here, because I've got my fictitious doorway-mounted hangboard. 
Y'all, this is just such a game changer. It allows you to set up a hangboard in seconds without drilling, without screwing, without mounting anything permanently into your walls. You just pop it into your doorway and then you can hang any hangboard from it. I love the boards that Fertitious makes and they give you 20% off when you buy a board with their doorway kit. But you could also mount any other board that you have, like a Peacemaker or whatever. And they even have like this pulley attachment that you can add to it if you want to reduce the load, which is what I was doing as I was training my pull-ups and my one-arms and these kinds of things. So if you can't drill a board into your wall, whether you rent or you're a student or maybe your significant other just doesn't want a chalky hangboard always on display, you can store this thing under your bed and then in seconds pop it into the doorway, get your workout in, and then make it disappear. It's such a cool system. You can hit that link in your show notes or just pop over to frictitiousclimbing.com to see it in action. And then you can get that 20% off a hangboard when you purchase that rad doorway mount. Check it out. This show is also sponsored by Fizzy Vantage, the official climbing nutrition sponsor of The Struggle. Y'all have been a paying customer of Fizzy Vantage for a couple of years now, and this stuff is just truly the best of the best if you are looking for an extra little edge in your training and your performance. Now, I've been doubling up lately on their insanely delicious PowerPlex vegan protein, and it has absolutely made a difference for me on and off the wall with regard to recovery and muscle growth and all the good stuff that you get when you take in extra protein, which for me as a vegetarian is something that I'm always focused on. Now I've been able to train harder and I have stayed healthier than I have ever been in the past. And I'm just a weekend warrior here, but when I see pros like Alex Magos, Daniel Woods, Amity Warm, and Jonathan Segrist, among so many others, like 50 other top names in climbing, using Fizzy Vantage every single day, I know I'm in good company. Now, if you're looking for that extra edge in your training and performance, and I know you are, then look no further. Just give it a shot. Hit that link in your show notes or use checkout code STRUGGLE15 to save 15% off any full-price nutrition order over at fizzyvantage.com. I'm telling you, you're going to feel a difference. Swing over to fizzyvantage.com and check it out. And lastly here, just a big thanks to all you patrons and subscribers out there. I've seen so many of you joining up recently, and it's friggin' rad. If that is you, you not only get this episode ad-free, but you also get some bonus content with Sasha at the very end, so be sure to stick around for that. And if you're not a patron or subscriber, I still love you, and I'm going to tell you more about those perks in a little bit. But first, let's get ready to take the lead with Sasha DeJulian. It's been a minute since I was at the red, actually. Yeah, since you came and climbed everything. <laughs> There's been so much new development. Yeah, I need to go back. Come on back. We'd love to have you. I'm excited to talk with you a little bit about the red and so many other things as well. But before we jump in, do you have any questions or anything? No, Um. you have my book. That's great. Did you have a chance to read it? I read the whole thing. What do you think? This is like a friggin' amateur hour over here. It, what do you, am I doing a podcast out of my basement utility closet. Yes, I actually am doing that. But look at this. I don't know if you can see this. Look at how many pages I've dog-eared. That's crazy. This is going to be a seven-hour interview. I hope you've cleared your night. Awesome. I <laughs> guess I asked because it's so, I guess because it's so fresh and it's not even out yet. It's so surprising to me when people have read my books. I'm like, whoa, this is real. Obviously, yeah. it, I've read it 1,800 times in the process of writing it but still the concept of like other people reading it is really exciting. You did this. This is a thing you did. It was a big project. It was like my long-term climbing project. I've never worked a route for three years. 
<laughs> That's a weakness of mine. I'm really bad at projecting. I don't have the attention span. I think the longest I've projected something was maybe a month sporadically. And so writing the book, I was like, this is like a big commitment. I love that. Oh, good. Well, using the book as a metaphor, I'm sure we'll weave that through plenty of this conversation. But first of all, congratulations on the book. Also, congratulations on getting married. I think you are fresh off your honeymoon. Isn't that right? Yeah, I actually got back. Yes, not two days ago. Got married last Saturday over Labor Day weekend. Then we flew to Nevis Island, which is just like a Caribbean island. It's actually pretty remote and had jungle juxtaposed to beach and then flew straight up to Aspen where I did a panel yesterday with Sean White and Chris Davenport and Josie Fouts on how mental health drives performance. Cool. And then, yeah, just flew back and now going to climb after this, see how that feels and get back to it. Well, I'm grateful for the time. Uh, I've been looking forward to this conversation since I started the podcast and had uh, your friend, our mutual friend, KJ on. Kevin Jorgensen, for those who are, are, are listening, um, obviously was on season one. We talked through all things Don Wall, all things Highball, um, starting his gym, doing uh, service for the community with One Climb. Just such a fantastic human being. And, and as part of that conversation, you came up and it's taken us this long to connect, but I'm glad because now we've got this book to talk through. I know KJ is an awesome friend and looking forward to seeing him in Yosemite this fall, but I'm, I guess, longtime listener, first time caller to the podcast. <laughs> well, thank you. I've had, yeah, I've had some of your friends on uh, recently, in fact. So I'm excited to keep this jam going here and um, very excited to dive into the book. The show has a format, you know, I usually talk about training, nutrition, tactics, mental game, and purpose. And I'm going to try to keep us generally within that framework, but pulling some stories and some direct quotes from the book as I read through it and I dog-eared, you know, half the, the thing and went through two highlighters. So I'm going to geek out a little bit as we go through here. But before we even kind of get into the normal struggle format, I just want to talk a little bit about the book, like the book process for you. Why write a book? Why now? How do you strike this balance between I thought, you know, what you did was was quite vulnerable, talking a lot about family life, personal life, tragedy, as well as climbing. It's not just a climbing book for those who haven't read it. It's a book about everything, kind of the arc of your life, but with climbing as like this thread that carries it through as you're a professional climber, but so much more. And so, yeah, I'm curious because you have a lot of things going on. You know, you're. it's not like you're probably twiddling your thumbs from day to day, Sasha. So what called you to do the book and maybe just a little bit about kind of what the experience was like. I'd love to start there and then we can kind of get into the normal framework here. Yeah, sure. I mean, there's so many points within even just that question. But first of all, the why and the why now, I have always really turned to writing as a processing mechanism for me of sharing my thoughts on the page. It's like how I process through and 99% of what I write never is going to be seen by anyone. But, you know, going on expeditions, keeping a journal to also going through like my dad's sudden death was how I processed through that. It was like an active form of therapy for me. And so when I went to Columbia University, that's what I majored in was creative nonfiction writing. 
And I knew I always wanted to write a book, but I never really felt like the timing was right. I always felt like there's so much more to go. My story is still, you know, being written. And in 2020, I basically had this domino effect of series in my life happen. And namely my diagnosis for double hip reconstruction and was essentially given the diagnosis that I would have to take minimum nine months off of climbing and go through five surgeries over the course of two years. And, you know, COVID was a whisper at that moment. There were a lot of changes in my life actively happening. And I felt like this was the time where I was ready to turn the page on my first chapter. So once I started thinking about my book as doesn't need to be the only book I ever write. This is just, you know, my life to this point, the challenges that I've faced, how I've built my career, what I've gone through and how I've overcome things to become who I am today. And that's a constantly evolving state of a human. Yeah. Well, congratulations. What an undertaking. And I really enjoyed it. I'll say that for those who are climbers, predominantly the people who are listening to this show or watching this show, there's so much great climbing content in there. And it's exciting to follow your journey through youth training, comp into sport, cutting edge sport, big wall, cutting edge, big wall. I mean, it's the whole kind of journey there, but it's also accessible enough for my wife to have when I was like reading it and she was picking it up and looking and she doesn't know much about climbing aside from, you know, what she picks up through osmosis from me. But you made it very accessible, the climbing as well as just the arc of the story. So congratulations. This is the struggle climbing show, though. So I have to imagine that writing a book, especially something as personal as this, um, probably isn't always the easiest thing to do. So what was the biggest struggle for you when it came to getting to the end? There were certain chapters that were really hard for me to write, to be quite honest. They, it was revisiting trauma in my life that was really hard. You know, chapter eight, I think it was chapter eight or chapter seven, I go into all of the emotions that came with losing my dad. And I also go through incident of really long-term harassment that I faced. And that whole incident was really hard for me to revisit because it was like ripping off a Band-Aid that still wounded and then, you know, charging right into it and giving the full account. Um, and so there was definitely sticky points of writing my story where it was pretty taxing on my mental state, but then they were also really enriching moments that I got through and got to revisit. And that was like going through memories of my early childhood that I hadn't even thought about in a long time. And what was really interesting was it was like, writing about these memories brought to life people that I haven't even thought about so much in a long time. And they start coming alive in such a visceral way in my dreams too. And it was a lot of self-discovery too. It was like when you revisit the early childhood and foundational relationships and patterns of decisions and how that changes, it's kind of like this live therapy that you put yourself through to understand your now better. So I think that was like a struggle, but also a really rewarding aspect to the struggle. 
And so through it all, I learned a lot of everything, kind of got to rethink a lot of my life as well. That's great. Well, I'm sure it was, yeah, all the emotions going through it. And I, I'm excited to dive in here and, and start to peel back some of these metaphorical and literal pages here of your climbing life, especially as we kind of dive into these first chapters of the Struggle Climbing Show. So let's kick things off as we always do here with struggle and with your concept of struggle. I'm going to quote you here and, and have you expand, but this really jumped out as I was reading the book. This came early in the book, page 13. You said, I credit my parents with creating an environment for me to see struggle not as a barrier, but rather as a speed bump, a temporary obstacle. So I typically ask all of our guests what their view of struggle is, but that jumped right off the page for me. So I'd love for you to expand on that a little bit and then, you know, bringing these things current, how do you see struggle as a climber? Yeah, I think that struggle is such a human um, component to life. Like I struggle all the time and you go through good days, you go through bad days. I go through good months and I go through bad months. And so I think it's a lot about how we treat ourselves as well through those moments of struggle. And it's almost like this balance too of being hard on ourselves enough to push ourselves through that point of struggle, but also being kind enough to have the ability to process that struggle is a good thing and that's natural and just accept it for what it is and see it in the moment as something that is going to be constantly changing because that's, I think, like one of the true certainties that we have in life is that there's always change. Like everything is always very fluid and things can change tomorrow that we can't predict today. So I think that when I was writing about my relationship with my parents and how they raised me, obviously every parent has their own approach, but my parents gave me a lot of freedom. And that was something that, you know, in writing this is like, oh, wow, my, you know, my parents let me go to Europe at 16 alone with friends. And maybe that's surprising to some people, but it was also embracing that passion for going after what you love and Obviously, there's struggle and loss and failure packed into my journey as much as any success and maybe more so. But the way that my parents, I think, taught me to just accept that's a part of life helped me push through those moments. And yeah, I'm, I'm really thankful for that open space to fail. You know, I think that for anyone who knows your story and for anyone certainly who dips into the book here, you've been faced with no shortage of struggles both on and off the rock, which is a very human experience to your point. But as we're going to be diving into a little of the nitty gritty of rock climbing for a bit here, you have been on some pretty gnarly expeditions and climbs. And we you mentioned your hip surgeries and these kinds of things. So I think that there's a rich tapestry of struggle here for us to dive into, and I'm excited to do so. Let's talk about training. Let's start there. I've got some things that I pulled from the book, but I want to open it up just for a second here and ask you generally, what is like a real struggle for you when it comes to training for climbing? That's a great question because my approach to training has evolved so much. And I actually look back to my early days and as a, as a young kid and as a teenager, 
I just climbed really like training wasn't something that I did so much as just going out and being so excited to just be like at the gym for hours on end or out at the crag. And it wasn't until later in my career that I started seeing cross training as really important for long-term progression and the overall health of my body as an athlete going through injuries and learning about cross training too for antagonist muscles and stability and mobility was really important with my training i think that i had to rethink the way that i see climbing personally because there's almost a mentality that i think exists within climbing of like always love it and it's so fun and you know it's like the best thing ever and i totally subscribe to that mentality but i also having been climbing for close to 25 years do struggle with the fact that i don't always love climbing and sometimes it's detractive to other facets of my life Hmm. and has taken me away from things that i'd love to do and kind of this constant struggle of a guilt complex of like, when I'm not motivated and I'm a professional climber, do I force it? And do I just go climb every day kind of like I'm supposed to? Or do I embrace that down point and say, you know, right now I want to focus on something else and come back to it. And I had never really given myself that opportunity to disconnect from climbing as much as I was kind of forced into it when I did take half a year off because all of a sudden I wasn't actually able to climb and I got to kind of re-nourish this relationship with the sport because it can get really, I think, and maybe it's just for me, I don't know if anyone, you know, you or anyone listening has gone through this, of it feeling a little toxic and so full of these expectations and social media too breeds a very comparative culture of like you go on and and see people posting of all these climbs they're doing and can instantly feel like no longer relevant or not good enough. And so that can get baked into my feeling and love for climbing itself. So I think I do struggle with those ups and downs of just feeling engaged with the sport and and then obviously like training you don't always love it and I think that I had to read several books where I really did connect with authors mentalities you know even Andre Agassi's book open I thought was a really interesting approach and a more extreme version of what I'm saying but sometimes it's you know not everyone likes to go to their job every day but you show up and so I think that comprehending how you show up when you're not as motivated and in what framework and then when you choose to give yourself some slack to it has been important for me to try to learn. Well, you know, it's such an interesting event that happened to you with the hip dysplasia. I'd love to talk about that for a second because I knew it happened just following you on social media and, you know, it's, you pick these things up, but it wasn't until I read that chapter of the book when it blew my mind, the kind of extent, the severity and the extent of these procedures. I mean, to the point where they were like sawing through your bones and you had to relearn how to walk. I mean, what, I guess I just kind of missed that in the fog of COVID or something like that. But when I read it, I was like, what? 
So kind of through this lens of, of training, but also just as, you know, as a professional climber and identity and that kind of thing. Tell me a little bit about that experience when you're kind of staring down this prospect of being many, many months without doing the sport that you love. That's also your career, but also just if you could explain to the audience here, the extent of that procedure, it was not a minor thing. Yeah, I was diagnosed with hip dysplasia in 2020 after essentially three or four years of just increasing pain in my hips. I had um, this sensation before I went in for an MRI that my femur head was popping out of my socket. And I would do these like wild twists of my hip to try and pop it back in. And um, it got so bad to the point that I was like, I can't just keep ignoring this. And I think um, as climbers, we have a really high pain tolerance because what we do is really comfortable. And so I just chalked up this, this hip pain with, you know, something that was to do with fatigue or, you know, my body getting older, but I'll stay in there, whatever. But it was essentially when I went in and I went to see three surgeons actually, because I, it was like hard to comprehend the severity of what I was being told, but my femur head was in a very shallow socket. So it was essentially popping out is like the way that you can think of it. And I had shredded through all of the connective tissue of what holds it in. So like my labrum was completely shredded on both sides and I was facing bone on bone rubbing, which was happening with the femur head to the pelvic bone. That's crazy. And so when that happens and you lose all the cartilage, that protects the bone, then it's necessary to get a hip replacement. And hip replacement, it would be in some ways a much easier surgery itself because you can actually almost, I think, walk out of that surgery like a day or two after. But it really changes your hips and all of a sudden you have, you know, brand new hips that are made out of metal and not very conducive to climbing at the level that I was expecting out of my body and also not very conducive to traveling to very remote places where medical attention wouldn't necessarily be attainable quickly if anything were to happen, which does happen. And another hip replacement would be inevitable down the line since I was only, I guess I was 27 at the time. So I basically crossed my fingers and prayed that I would be able to have what was called the PAO surgery, which is what I ended up having on both sides where basically cut through the pelvic bone and cut it into four pieces on both sides. And this is done over, I did the left side first and then the right side. So first surgery was shaving down the femur head, arthroscopically knitting together the labrum back together. And then the next surgery, which was a 10 hour open hip surgery, which I had on my left and right side. Essentially, yeah, carpentry work, <laughs> sawing apart my pelvic bone in which, you know, my abs are cut out and also approached through the backside too. So I have some pretty fun scars <laughs> from the whole process. But what was tough was it renders you like very incapable of doing much for a while because I couldn't sit night up to 90 degrees for the first eight weeks. It was like, there's just different ways in which that would affect the surgery healing. So mm -hmm. I was kind of literally laid up and having had my abs cut through, like just coughing or laughing, 
heard a lot. Maybe women who've had like C-sections can relate to this, but it was a pretty isolating experience to be honest. And then the final surgery was actually taking out the hardware and I ended up turning the hardware into a ring that I wear. I worked with a jeweler here in Boulder to put in pink sapphires, which are a stone of resiliency and perseverance through struggle. And they're the actual heads of the six inch long screws that were holding my both sides of my pelvic bone in place. Oh man, what a cool way to to kind of honor and and celebrate not only the pain that you went through, but also the recovery that you went through. I appreciate you sharing that. That's really, I mean, it's so mind blowing to me what doctors are capable of, but then also the determination uh, and the resiliency that you had through that to, to have it happen on each side and to go through that pain and that recovery. You, you explained it very well in the book and it was just like, it really blew my mind. So congratulations. And then to be back and back to elite climbing is really inspiring. I want one more question here on the training chapter. Um, I want to geek out on training for a second. So let me ask you about endurance training. I see you've got a pretty rad tread wall set up in your dojo, which I, I think is probably a great tool, but you know, a tip for me, a tip for the listeners when we're trying to build up that Sasha endurance, what are your go-to protocols that you like? Yeah, uh, endurance is something that comes naturally to me versus power. And so I actually go through more power building stages than I do endurance. But I actually cross train a lot with cardio. It's something that I really enjoy doing road biking and swimming specifically, but hiking and trail running. I found that does help my stamina. But for climbing specifically, I would start with hangboard repeaters are a thing that really helped me in that seven seconds on, three seconds off for five or six minutes and do maybe five or six sets of those. I do have the kilter board in my garage and the moon board. I actually use the kilter board a lot more for things like three by threes or four by fours. And I think that's a really great tool for building up endurance that's also powerful. I know that some strength coaches have said that it's anomaly. It's an anomaly to say like power endurance because the two are separate, but I still call it power endurance. I don't know if it's the right technical term. And then on the tread wall, yeah, I really like time-based repeaters. So whether it's one minute on, one minute off for 10 to 15 sets, obviously not everyone has a tread wall. I do laps at the gym. If you're going to the gym and doing like, I think doing two to four routes in a row, if you have a patient Blair who you can also belay at the same time, I know in my book, talk a lot about how my mom belays me or belayed me. And she hasn't actually belayed me in a couple years because she lives in Montreal and I just don't see her as much now. She feels like she's rusty from belaying. So she wants an intro course again, but. <laughs> well, I don't know. You're all the way up to 9A, she's caught you on. So I feel like she's, she probably yeah. knows what she's doing. I mean, it's crazy. Like she belayed me from when I was seven years old onwards. And it's actually really fun for me to climb with her because she didn't have any interest in climbing, but she's read climbing, studied climbing, watches like all the films. Right. She, yeah, she's really vested in it, but loves to watch it and loves to blay. So yeah. Um, and so I guess back to the point of having a blayer that can support you, having a good climbing partner, I think is everything. 
my trainers are Robin O'Leary and Alex Puccio. And so it's been really fun because they're good friends of mine. We're going to shift over to nutrition. And nutrition is, God, we could probably talk for two hours on nutrition because I know it's a passion of yours. And also it kind of cuts both ways as a professional climber, especially a youth, a female climber coming up through the comp scene. So I want to start there if we can. Uh, from your book, you you had talked in the early part of the book um, quite extensively about some of your training in nutrition and some of the pressures that were on you uh, on the comp scene. At one point, you got down to, you said, 94 pounds and were experiencing some disordered eating. And you said, quote, looking back, I believe most climbers on the World Cup circuit had some kind of eating disorder. If climbers wanted to do well, they needed to be super lean. That was the climbing aesthetic, even if no one admitted it out loud. It was the same for women and men, although people didn't comment on men's bodies with the same frequency or ferocity they did women's bodies. I'd like to just hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, it's a big topic and it's unfortunately still relevant today. I think that the competition style has changed a lot from the back in the day when I was competing, which is always, I think that the competition style now makes a lot of sense for both Climbers focused on competing in the gym, but also people watching because it's so dynamic and powerful. Right. And I think that probably has helped back in in my day. <laughs> um, I was still old saying that, but really the competition environment has changed a lot. Like the roots would be almost similar to the Red River Gorge, where you're like climbing on these crimps for just a long time up the steep wall. And it would basically be like a test of attrition of who had the best endurance at a lot of competitions, including the Arco venue. And I remember like different venues that were kind of notorious for being extreme endurance tests. And Mm -hmm. when I was 16 and was starting to go to my first World Cups, it was, it was weird. I felt like I was like, and I hate this term, but almost like the more like the heavier athlete, almost like at a six at 16. And I know in my book that at 12 was the first time that I was kind of exposed to this diet culture within climbing with a coach that I had that recommended that I lose five pounds before a competition. And that's what climbers did. And then being a teenager and seeing firsthand on the World Cup circuit, like all of these climbers that I felt like heavy compared to, and I was just like this super light 16 year old was a really staggering moment for me to feel like my body should change. And I think that there was definitely this moment. I hit puberty to be quite frank, very late. I was 18 or 19 by the time that I hit puberty. And that is probably not uncommon among female athletes. But the amount of hours that I was climbing and the travel schedule and the stress and all of that kind of compounded to also me losing weight. And I was, as I was losing weight, there was almost like this give and take of I was having these better performances, both in competition and on rock. And I was starting to almost look more of the part of what I saw at 16 and thought was like staggering. And now I, w- I was a part of it. And as I felt this increased success, it's almost like this fueling aspect of now that this is working well for me, like what's changed. And um, I remember that 
my career kind of paralleled the dawn of social media. And with that was the introduction to trolls because before social media, you know, there's always going to be gossip and, and stupid rumors that happen that are not grounded in truth, but you don't really see it as much as when someone's creating a forum about you online. And as a teenager being exposed to that, it's, it's really hard on your self-esteem and your self-worth. And also it becomes an associative factor that's so overwhelming with why you're succeeding. And so when I'm reading, oh, Sasha's, you know, won this because she's this weight or, you know, I could climb as strong as her if I didn't get my period and comments like that, specifically, mostly from men, which is weird. It's really a toxic environment and it filtrates through, it filtrated through at least what I thought of myself and it kind of perpetuated this toxic approach that I had to nutrition. And the way that I overcame my disordered eating patterns was really leaning in and working with experts and learning more about nutrition because, you know, there there's not... For me, it was exposing myself to what I could actually do to change this behavior in a positive way. And learning about nutrition became a passion because I cared so much about my performance. I wanted to understand how my body could work for me in a healthy way. And then learning more about the negative effects of long-term disordered eating frightened me a lot. And it was like, I don't want to lose the ability to have a kid or, you know, have osteoporosis at a young age because of depriving my body for this sport that I love, but it shouldn't be everything. And everything to me was my future as a healthy adult who could live a long life and have a family. So I I think that it's really hard on so many levels, both on your expectation of your body as it changes. Me going through puberty and going to school and having less time to train when I was in university because I was hustling really hard. And then having that um, also then become commentary online that was like almost like the opposite direction of, oh, now Sasha's not climbing as hard because she like gained 10 pounds. So that's like really hard. Um, and I don't wish it on anyone. And so I think that's become a big vocal point for me is learning the right way to approach specifically women and younger women in athletics, but it is a gender, it it does cross genders. I saw a lot of men and still do who struggle with that balance of having a healthy lean body for climbing, but not going down the deprivation route. And so I think that the more that I've leaned into how do you feel your body appropriately is just really important for long-term health and performance. So so what does that look like for you now? Because you, you obviously, you went through this period where the pendulum swung too far one way, you recognized it was disordered, but through this educational and experiential journey, you got to the point where you did have a well-researched and I think kind of performance-minded way of fueling. And so what are the big takeaways for those of us who maybe are still trying to figure it out? I would say that, first of all, something that I've learned 
that's very basic is when you're hungry, eat and try to not be like starving because if you're starving, then it's gone a little too far. Consistency of greens is really important. Every morning that I wake up, basically my routine is I'll drink a liter of water and then normally that water has like some lemon in it, but it doesn't necessarily, I mean, I know that it's great to have lemon water in the morning. Sometimes there's no lemons available when I'm traveling. I actually take athletic greens in the morning and as I'll do that next. Then I make a smoothie. Normally my smoothies are very dense. I like to do a base of spinach and I'll do fruit and protein powder adaptogens um, and like a nut butter or something like that. So basically you're building in greens, protein, healthy fats. And then let's see, at lunch, you know, lunch is probably my weaker point because I'm often on the go. And for climbing purposes, that is why I started my bar company at when I was like 2012, when I was a freshman at university, I was like, making my own bars in my college dorm by having a blend tech, which has 3.3 horsepower engine blender that'll just decimate up nuts and dates. So I'd use like dates and nuts and integrate vegetable powders and different kind of concoctions. And I'd roll them up and send them off to my friends and bring them on my trips. And then in 2012, when I was in at Columbia, I was starting to get more curious about nutrition. I started to work with a nutritionist actually learned not too many years after that I had celiac disease, which was very transformative for me because I couldn't understand why my body felt so bloated and uncomfortable and my joints would get super sore every time that I had like a gluten exposure, which I wasn't even aware of what celiac was and have learned a lot about it since. But basically registered the name Senbars in 2012 because I was like one day when I have time, I'd love to do something with this. And then I guess cutting to it for dinner, I'm normally focused on having protein and greens. And I like rice a lot personally, but something like that. I think that moderation is key. Like I have a sweet tooth, so I don't like to deprive myself from it. But I will say that I don't eat refined sugar, at least not often. And I have found that has changed my taste buds, actually. I crave more salt than I do sugar now. And if I have sweets, I like them homemade and knowing what's in them. I use coconut sugar, date sugar, but it's hard. I mean, it's, it's I'm like so far from perfect on nutrition and I'm still learning, but I aspire to the people that I surround myself who know more about nutrition, like my Sunbar's co-founder, Ariane Jones, who is a winter sport Olympic athlete and really the architect of our Sun Bars recipes, even just chatting with her when I have questions and being curious about learning more is something that's helped me. Yeah, well, I've tried Sun Bars. I've been taking them to the crag with me when I'm going out to the red and um, really enjoying them. I like the, particularly there's one of them that's the Perform. It's got like these cacao like nibs in there. It's like a, it's like a nut butter one. It's delicious. Yeah. The cacao nibs are actually like dusted in coconut nectar. And so they have that balance of sweetness and, you know, because cacao nibs can be kind of bitter, but we take where we source our ingredients very seriously and they're all like local and we have great relationships with the farms that we get them on, that we get our ingredients from too. So that's, that's cool. You can call out an ingredient 
Yeah, well, I, I get a little nerdy over bars because I also started a bar company with some friends. That's it's not a performance bar company, but it's called This Saves Lives, and it's like a give back bar company. And so for everyone sold, we give food to kids around the world. And anyway, I learned a lot about bars and like going to co-manufacturers and understanding like how they come off the slab and all this nerdy stuff and sourcing ingredients and like non-GMO almonds and this kind of thing. So it's a little bit of familiar territory for me, but I have to say as somebody who's in the bar business as well, I really have enjoyed your bars. I think they've been great and I've been taking them out to the crag with me. And it's nice because they've got other things. They've got these adaptogens in them and that kind of thing. So I can tell you put like a lot of thought into making a quality product where if you do have to skip a lunch or something like that, it's going to give you a lot of what you need. Well, I will have to offline about the bar business. And I've learned so much too. Like I going into it, it's kind of like that mentality of if you don't know something, it shouldn't be an inhibiting factor of learning. And I didn't know anything about the CPG world. And for it's people hell. who don't know that acronym, consumer packaged goods. And it's been a really fun new endeavor to be like rolling my sleeves up in and be the CEO of. All right, y'all, let's take a quick little breather here to shout out our newest sponsor at The Struggle. I'm so psyched, Scarpa. Holy smokes. You guys, I've been climbing in Scarpas for a decade now. And I just, I love the way that they fit and they perform on rock. I was strapped into my Instinct VSs just this past weekend as I got on my fall proj for the first time this season. And they were a dream on the steep pockets of this climb that I'm doing. I wish my fingers could hold on as well as my instincts do right now. But hey, it's early, so I'm just building some fitness right now. Look, they're just the best, most well-designed and manufactured shoes around. Whether you're a weekend warrior like me or a pro like Maddie Hong, Amity Warm, Alex Puccio, Nathaniel Coleman, or Jordan Cannon, and so many others, Scarpa has gotcha. They've been sustainably making the best footwear for climbers, trail runners, skiers, and hikers since 1938. Yeah, they've been around for a bit. And that sustainability callout isn't just lip service, y'all. They're committed to sustainable production, carving a path for those of us who seek not only peak performance, but also a planet that'll be preserved to be explored for generations to come. I love my approach shoes. I love my climbing shoes. I think you will too. Give them a shot. You can shop the whole collection at scarpa.com. Scarpa, no place too far. And this episode is also made possible by patrons and subscribers of the show. I love you guys so much. For about the price of a beer each month, you get all sorts of perks, including more than 20 hours of exclusive content with the likes of Chris Sharma, Alex Honnold, Nina Williams, Allison Vest, Ravioli Biceps, Tom Randall, and Sasha DeJulian. I've got uncut videos up there, pro clinics to help you level up your training and climbing, and loads more. Plus, it just supports what I'm doing here. It helps me to keep putting together thoughtful interviews, and banger guests like the one we are currently listening to, and I promise I'll get you back to in just a second. So if you'd be willing to buy me a beer, pop over to patreon.com slash the struggle climbing show and check things out. You can also subscribe right there in your Apple podcast player if you listen on Apple. There's no commitment. You can just check it out risk-free and quit if you don't like it. And if you see me out at the crag, let me know that you are a patron and I will buy you a beer in return. I'm so grateful for your support. Now, Let's get back to this conversation. So let's jump into some tactics here. And I'd like to look at it maybe first through the lens of Bella Vista, which was like kind of this first big wall, like cutting edge 
very hard climb that you did. And also, it seemed like a lot of things went wrong. Uh, weather ended up being a factor. You ended up having to free solo uh, the exit of it and getting off route and kind of epicking at the top for the night and this kind of thing. So curious, what did you learn tactically from Bella Vista and, and how has that changed or evolved as you've taken on increasingly impressive and challenging big wall projects? Bella Vista speaks to this as the start of this learning curve. And that was quite steep. And that's that preparation is key and knowing what you're getting into. I didn't have either of those going into <laughs> that climb. And I will say that I've had this opportunity to learn from other climbers, which is really a privilege because Bella Vista, which I did with Edu, and Edu is a much more just experienced climber on that terrain than me at, I think I was 19 years old and was like, oh yeah, Reinhold Messner told me to go climb Bella Vista. So let's go to Bella Vista. Right. And not even knowing, like I looked at it that and was like, okay, the crux pitch is like a 514B. And great. So that'll be the hardest part. And then we'll be smooth sailing to the top and not knowing that then the hardest part is actually um, keeping it together and navigating and all of the endurance and just um, perseverance through a very long day um, and having the head for a wall and all of these aspects that some came naturally to me, like being calm up high. And I am someone who's very OCD in my professional life of liking things very organized and knowing, you know, everything's color-coded and tabbed and whatever. So I think that I like systems, but at the time I didn't know what systems were necessary. Um, so I think that tactically, those are two things that are really important in just going after any objective because things can go sideways very quickly and having a multitude of plans in place for if that happens and knowing what risks you could potentially face, how you're going to mitigate those. Um, from afar, looking at even a climb like Bella Vista, which I know better now, but as a sport climber, um, I was like, oh, it's a bolted climb in the Dolomites. But I think a lot of big wall climbs, even if bolted, have extreme adventure elements to them. Mm -hmm. And there are also the elements of, yes, climbing a 514 on the ground is going to be very different than climbing a 514 at a thousand feet up after doing X, Y, Z and having all of this stuff hanging off of your harness and stuff like that. So I think just sure. knowing what you're getting into and taking the steps necessary to prepare and be ready is not something I did. I kind of learned on the go. I literally remember hanging out at the 90 degree angle and Edu teaching me in Spanish how to Jumar, which one could say is kind of sketchy, but needless to say, I learned how to Jumar very quickly. So I think that there's kind of a balance of tactics of if you're going to go on your first experience, maybe try and go with someone who knows more than you do. And it's almost like that extends to life in general, like surrounding yourself with people who fill your voids and have strengths where you're weak is really important for growth. So I think that kind of parallels big wall climbing and life in general. 
Yeah, talk about a, a tactical crash course. And, and then, you know, as you said, it's not like it was over then, right? So you've got this 14B pitch a thousand feet off the ground, which is just crazy to wrap my head around. But then, uh, as you write in the book, and I was gripped at, at this part of it, you, I think you got off route and some weather came in or something like that. And you, you essentially, you, you needed to free solo or you made the decision to untie and exit the climb soloing. So tell me about how that decision came to be and, and just about that experience in general. Yeah, essentially we had gone off route on Trechime Oeste, which is the tower in the Dolomites where Belvista is. There is, there's like a multitude of easier routes that will take you to the top. And a lot of those routes are traditional and we didn't have track gear with us because we were climbing a bolted line. And so also what happens in the Dolomites is, I mean, we had some pieces of gear, but definitely we were on terrain that was probably between routes, to be honest, where it was like the line may have been straight and we went a little to the right. And then there's probably like, you know, 50 meters to the next line where we're not seeing that. And it's the final bit of climbing, not more than 100 or 200 feet to the top, mm -hmm. but still very like high consequence, easy terrain. And um, where we were, since there was nowhere to place gear and there were no bolts, um, we had this choice of do we simul climb up this terrain on very malleable rocks since the Dolomites is kind of known for having a lot of pockets of not so great rock too, even though it's one of the most special places that I've climbed. Or do we untie from the rope and kind of mitigate our risk of the rope dragging between us? And so that's what we ended up doing. And I think that it was a very dramatic moment for me because this is just like the first on so many levels, the first of so many things all compounded together. I remember my handhold and my foothold broke and there was just like this moment of this like anger and frustration and fear all compounded and realizing in that moment, like that is just all a fiery ball of negativity that's going to not help me at all. That what I needed to control was my mental space and my approach to get through this. And so it was a really pivotal moment in my life, actually, because it was this realization that your calmness and mental fortitude matters so much towards what was my safety and you could argue my life, literally, but also just success in general and, and getting to the top of something. And so we ended up getting to the top, actually, when it was dark and again, back to the tactics of like preparation we, we were just soaking wet from a storm that happened while we were on the wall and we had no food, no water. Edu had actually dropped his down jacket. We both just shivered for so long that we were like looking and looking for the descent. But in the Dolomites too, the descents are not obvious and mm. it's pitch black. We have dying headlamps and I have cell phone, which is the great irony and could be a cell phone commercial because I'm like, well... I could call Alex Huber since he did the first ascent of this route and ask him for the way down. 
And yeah, I chronicle this in the book, but he's, I get a hold of him and he starts telling me about his day because we were actually going to meet the next day for a coffee. And he doesn't realize that I'm at the top of Trey Chime, a West Day. And so he's like, tell me about his day and like where we can meet. And I'm like, no, no, Alex, we just climbed Bella Vista. Like, how do we get down? And when he was like, oh, Sasha, you have to sleep at the top tonight. You cannot go down at dark. We were like, oh my God. <laughs> it was definitely like, ranked up there with the coldest nights of my life just Epic. being so unprepared in the like howling wind and rain and just the top of a mountain in a like a soaking wet sweater with no food all right let's shift to mental game here sasha and there are so many instances that that you've highlighted in the book where you've been pushed to your absolute limit both both physically and mentally and I want to dive into how you handle those scenarios. And specifically, you mentioned breathwork and learning from Wim Hof. And maybe that's a great place for us to enter into the mental game chapter. Yeah, essentially, it does break down to controlling your body through your mind because our minds are so powerful. And that comes down to breath. And the breath work that I learned through working with Wim Hof actually at a Red Bull high performance camp was the heat that you can generate through breath holds and also breath releases and high-frequency breathing exercises. First of all, I have rain odds in my fingers and my toes, so I'm highly susceptible to cold conditions. And so having heat within my body is really important to help prevent my extremities from freezing. And then in experiences, ice climbing and climbing, like when we were on the north face of the Eiger, it would get really cold in different environments where it's even just winter climbing in Colorado. I'm very susceptible to having the screaming barfies and stuff like that. So I would say that the cold contrast baths are really interesting to me. Doing sauna and then cold plunges, something that I really enjoy. We're actually getting one for our house um, because I think it's really helpful but in general, like finding mountain streams and even Boulder Canyon has a really cold river in the winter. So doing that, I think just like cold exposure can help too. And then when it comes to kind of how you deal with that cold exposure. So if you're jumping into a mountain stream, I, I was out in Leavenworth this spring doing some bouldering and jumped into a mountain spring. And, and I do like cold baths at home, but like it's not the same as a mountain stream. How are you using that breath work to either warm yourself up or wake yourself up, give yourself some energy to push on? A lot for me is preventing super fast-paced tempo breathing. So when I start to shiver, it's about like taking long, calm breaths so that I don't go into that shiver mode because when you start shivering, your teeth are chattering. It's really hard on your nervous system. And then that cold sensation is hard to get back control of. And I feel it in climbing too. Like if I'm climbing and I say all of a sudden to myself, oh God, I'm so pumped. Then like instantly I'm falling. <laughs> Versus if I don't allow my mind to go there and it's almost like mind trickery, like you're not cold. It's actually fine. You're fine. Mantras like that help me a lot too. So I like that. One of the breathing exercises that we did with Wim Hof was just like lying on a floor and doing long breath holds and almost like asphyxiation of oxygen. But it was really wild because I've never had an outer body experience like I did through that experience. 
And that would then be like quicker breathing and then long breath holds and kind of a balance of that. But in my implementation outside, it's more like long, deep breaths and controlling my mental state through breathing of just like keeping calm. I really appreciate that. I, I was fascinated by that in the book. And thanks for, for adding a little more context to that. Let me um, quote you and just get some some thoughts. This is about something that's, I think, relatable to me and, and a lot of people when, when we're trying to take on climbs and maybe it's climbs that are at our limit or we think might even be beyond our limit. And you said, quote, I tried not to have any expectations each time I left the ground. If I didn't think about the top, I could concentrate on executing each sequence as smoothly as possible so that when I reached an anchor, it felt more like a gift than a check mark on a laundry list. I'm curious how you've come to kind of have that mentality and if you're even able to keep it all the time or if some of the outcome-oriented stuff can still seep in every once in a while and how you manage that. I mean, first of all, no, I cannot always have that mentality and it's something that I strive for. But again, like the thing that I love maybe the most, uh, fe the feelings in climbing is like that feeling when you get to the top of something that you really worked hard towards achieving. Clipping those anchors is just this unparalleled feeling of bliss for me that is hard to find in other aspects of life, to be quite frank, because it's so rewarding and it gives each climb that I've done that closure of purpose that is so personally special that I can really, I mean, I can look back at all those feelings on all the benchmark roots that I've done and remember those so vividly. But I do think that for me, the success has often come in letting go. And that's why I do have hanging on and letting go as a part of my subtitle in Take the Lead. Because my success in a lot of the climbs, including like um, I talk about Arabea and the pressure that I had when I was there and you're filming and there's all this like stress and expectation of doing it to then almost like going back, training, doing these things in the US and going in with like such little expectation, just being there, being in the moment and sending it. And I think that a big part of climbing that can hold me back is leaving the ground of my project and trying to climb it perfectly because I think that I have to climb it perfectly in order to send it. But you actually don't. Like you can mess up a sequence and maybe your right hand's where your left hand is and do an extra like match and then make it through it and be like, oh, that was shaky and didn't look so great. But you're still on the wall. Yeah. For me, like I can easily overthink things especially if there's like a lot of pressure built up into it. And when I just kind of let go of my mind or even on Ryu on the crux pitch, I smoked a joint <laughs> and then I sent the crux pitch. Yes. And that's something probably the first place I've said this to, but it was really helpful. Like I just kind of disconnected and I was just like there and enjoying the moment. Yeah, well, I really appreciate you sharing that experience because I feel like our bodies uh, can sometimes do the thing if our minds just get out of the way, right? And sometimes that can come through flow, just, you know, attaining flow on a route. And sometimes flow can be assisted in mindfulness practices or nutrition or THC uh, for, for that matter. So I actually love to hear a little bit more about that experience, if you're willing. I mean, I guess there's contrasts of like when I'm on an expedition, I think one of the my favorite parts of it is just being like 
so fully present in where you are. And I live in Boulder, so it's totally legal and something that I like to have when I'm outside and not necessarily something that I implement into performance. It's more like just relaxing. But in this moment, we had been on the wall. Matilda had sent the crux pitch and I had sent it um, on a previous time, like on top rope when we were reviewing the route, but I couldn't send it on lead. And I was like trying to send it on our push. And I fell like from the last hole, like three times, mm. knew I had it in me, but my fingers were just completely raw at that point. And we were like, okay, well, I'm going to try it one more time. And then since Matilda sent it, if I don't send it, then we'll just go to the top and we'll get the team ascent. And Matilda will have done it. I will have wished that I did, but it'll be great. And I'll just try it later or come back next year. So I kind of let go of the expectation. I was like, man, I'm toasted. My fingers are bleeding on every tip. I'm just going to like smoke a joint and just be here. And like, it is what it is. It's been an awesome trip. And then I'm like, okay, well, I'm just going to go for it one more time and whatever, see what happens. And then I made it through, I guess, the different kind of checkpoints and in the film, you can kind of, the film Ryu, you can see that, that fi- those final sequences. And I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe like I'm here and I'm still on and I'm still fighting. And so like that emotional send was just one of those moments that I was like so tired. And I just kind of like written off the aspect that I was going to send it on our push attempt to then like doing it. I mean, like now we can go to the top. And it was like a very blissful moment that, yeah, I didn't smoke weed insane. Like this is going to help me because it actually very rarely does. It's more of like a just chilling thing that I do, right. but I happen to have it on the ledge because at night we would like smoke some weed and go to sleep. Yeah. Epic. It's uh, fortunately it's becoming more normalized and less stigmatized, certainly with the legalization of it. And we're always like, for whatever reason, it's always okay for people to be like crushing beers and going and doing things. But like, yeah. there's still a weird stigma around smoking a joint and going and doing things, but not so much anymore. That's exactly it. And probably the, why it's the first time me revealing that when I'm behind the scenes of Ryu, because even on social media, like it's a tough environment. You don't, you don't know what's going to happen if you say something um, like I was, I was diagnosed with so much oxycodone when I was going through my surgeries and I took hardly any of it. I mainly used THC and like the difference of, of narcotics versus using something like that's like marijuana for healing purposes was very important for me. And yeah, I've been diagnosed with ADHD and been prescribed Adderall and I never take Adderall. And so I think that there's just an emerging conversation that's happening, but it's, it's like a testy subject to get into yeah, well, I really appreciate you opening up on it. You know, we, we got everybody's got to take care of themselves the way that their body responds. Right. And, you know, getting pumped full of a bunch of prescription narcotics is uh, one way uh, in particular. This country has handled a lot of things, but there are obviously other ways through nutrition, which we've already talked about in great length and through homeopathic remedies, through things like THC. So um, it's very thoughtful conversation. And I appreciate you bringing that to the table here. Uh, let's keep moving. 
let's talk about things that you're psyched on outside of the fight with gravity here. We got a book. We've got send bars. We've got female-focused adventures, YouTube. We've got your writing. We've got all your advocacy work. So, you know, the work you've done with Climb the Hill, Access Fund, American Alpine Club, Women's Sports Foundation. I've already used up eight of our 10 minutes just naming the stuff that you have going on outside of climbing. What are you most psyched on? Um, advocacy work has been something that I think can be, it can be daunting as an athlete to expose yourself to something that, you know, may not come as natural as knowing your sport. But as I got more involved with climbing outside and learned more about what Access Fund American Alpine Club and then later Protect Our Winters was doing, it felt like such obvious organizations to align with. And what I love about these organizations too is they've really embraced the idea of imperfect advocacy too. It's, it's like education and material for me as an athlete to learn about and opportunities to use my platform for a cause that's beyond just, you know, a selfie and getting likes around that. I, I think that as, and it was probably hit me when I was about 18 or 19, when I moved to New York City to start college and I had kind of grown into this limelight of our sport and felt like, okay, I have this platform. Now, what do I do with it? And that's when I first joined and started working with Billie Jean King and her foundation, Women's Sports Foundation. And it was like, felt very moving to do something beyond just my selfish pursuit of climbing. And through the foundation, I got to meet all of these other incredible legendary female athletes and iconic role models within the, the women's equality movement. And that was like my early exposure to just being more than just focused on climbing. It was like, we can utilize our voices and affect some sort of more change for other people. Well, I'm so inspired by your advocacy work because you're not just like sending out a post. You're on the board or you're heavily involved or you're going to Capitol Hill or you're, you know, deeply involved with these organizations. I appreciate you doing it. You talk about women in sports quite a bit and just women and girls' rights and giving them every opportunity that you've been able to create for yourself and gotten support from. And one of the names that you pepper throughout your book, as well as specifically in the acknowledgments, someone that I was grateful to have here on, on the show is Lynn Hill. And I'd love to hear about your relationship with Lynn and what makes her so special, because I'm sure as you and every other climber in the world was like, she is like the person on the poster in the room. And then all of a sudden you became friends and you became climbing partners. And what an interesting arc to have alongside somebody who has completely changed the game for all climbers, men and women. So tell me a little bit about Lynn Hill as she's influenced you as a climber and as a person. Yeah. Some a side note on Lynn, because she has become a close friend of mine, is last week at my wedding, we had an extended after party. And Lynn was one of the last six people standing at like 3 a.m. <laughs> uh, 
it's been so special to cultivate that relationship with her because she is who I grew up with a poster of her on my wall with her famous quote, it goes boys. And you know, seeing her at my local gym speak when I was like young to now going and developing a climb with her in the flat irons and spending like long days with her on the wall and really seeing and appreciating her process firsthand. It's been really special because we have these like hour to 90 minute long hikes out to the feature where our climb is. And we'll talk about a lot of things. And first of all, like it's a really humanizing experience to see someone that you've looked up to on so many levels for athletic achievement, but also to learn more about just like the early days of climbing in her perspective and what she's gone through as a woman cutting against the grain in a male-dominated sport and the experiences that I've had and finding like connective tissue there, it makes, you know, it makes my experience feel like I'm not alone. And I think that in, in sports in general and in climbing and some of my experiences, like it was Lynn Hill and Robin Eversfield that I called in, you know, 2018 when it was, there's kind of like this cumulative moment that I went through of just like a long-term situation that was really toxic and they're the ones who I could lean on for advice. And so having these like very iconic figures within my sport and then also having a relationship that I've had the privilege of cultivating with people like Billie Jean King, who've been so iconic within women's sports too. And then other women of the sorts like that is it's, it brings to what I feel motivated to achieve. And I think it's really hard to look at my career and be like, okay, what am I trying to accomplish? What will I be known for? And all these aspects that I don't necessarily have the answers to, but what really resonates with me is just, you know, creating a path forward like these women did for more women and enabling and creating a larger platform for the future and being able to feel comfortable in your own skin and knowing how to use your voice and knowing what you stand for. I hope that I've helped climbing move into the mainstream. And that's been kind of a big part of my career. It's like doing things that were very uncommon. And then it's looking to people like Lynn who laid the foundation before me of a lot of what I have wouldn't have been possible without the women and men that came before me who set really that foundational groundwork. And so I, I hope that I can help that future generation. And when I feel so happy is like seeing younger climbers, like doing more like fashion forward things or working with makeup brands and stuff like that. Cause I was kind of like the first on a lot of things that I got a lot of pushback and negativity and like, even I remember signing with Red Bull and Adidas, their first climbers in North America. And it was like, oh, you sell out or whatever. But then these companies have given like such platforms and now are supporting future climbers too. And so it's cool to see that growth happening. And I'm on the board of an organization called Ascend Athletics, which is really using climbing as an empowering tool for women in Pakistan and Afghanistan that don't even have necessarily basic human rights. And so it's kind of this philosophy of like how sport can change lives. And 
I recognize that my life definitely had so much more privilege than a lot of people in this world. But it's like, instead of looking at, okay, now I'm going to go feel guilty about it. It's about how can I use my platform to help move people who are less fortunate, you know, towards realizing their own dreams. And that wraps up our deep dive into some deep topics with Sasha DeJulian. What'd y'all think of this one? Let us know. You can find us on IG at Sasha DeJulian and at The Struggle Climbing Show. If you are as inspired and motivated by this conversation as I was, I recommend y'all pick up a copy of Sasha's book, Take the Lead. Find it wherever you get books, preferably an independent bookshop in your own town there. And if you would like to see some video clips from this interview and hear a bit of bonus content, That's all part of the perks of being a patron or subscriber. So if you're already one, thank you so much. Keep listening here through the end of the music where Sasha then reveals her favorite place to climb, what tunes she jams to when she's training, whether it's pronounced route or root. This is a big one, y'all. And a little bit more there. If you're not a patron or subscriber, you can join right there in your Apple Podcast app or over at patreon.com slash the struggle climbing show. Huge thanks and appreciation to our show sponsors who have brought you this episode at zero cost. I am so psyched to be partnered with Scarpa, makers of the highest performing adventure footwear with a commitment to sustainability. You can shop the whole collection at scarpa.com. Big love to our friends over at Fizzy Vantage, makers of research-based performance-enhancing nutrition for climbers. In Europe, you can find it over at the Epic TV and Banana Fingers online shops, and in the U.S. at Select Gyms and at fizzyvantage.com. Hit that link in your show notes or use code STRUGGLE15 at checkout for 15% off. And big thanks to Frictitious Climbing for changing the game with their revolutionary doorway mount for hangboards. Score 20% off a hangboard when you pick up that doorway mount. No screwing, no drilling. It's up there in seconds. Check it all out at FrictitiousClimbing.com. All right, my friends, that clips the anchors on this episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. And hey, if you want a little bit more struggle content, plus a free sticker, what? Free stickers, yay. Sign up for the struggle newsletter. It's something that I'm putting together about once a month, maybe twice a month at the absolute most. I won't overwhelm your inbox. You can swing by the struggleclimbingshow.com. That's a landing page. Just toss in your email address and you'll get some cool stuff from guests of the show, some never before heard or seen footage, training content, and some secret deals from our sponsors. All that at thestruggleclimbingshow.com. Hey, did you know that The Struggle is carbon neutral in partnership with the Honnold Foundation? Well, you do now. They're doing such cool work to bring clean energy to communities around the world. You can check out their latest grant recipients at honnoldfoundation.org, plus some short films they're making about the projects they're doing. Amazing content, y'all. Check it all out at honnoldfoundation.org and toss them some love if you can. And lastly, The Struggle is a proud member of the Plug Tone Audio Collective, a diverse group of the best, most impactful podcasts in the outdoor industry. Listen to all of them. They're so good. This show was produced and hosted by me, Ryan Devlin. I hope your training and climbing are going great. And if you are struggling like me, well, let's just remember that the struggle makes us stronger. <laughs>